Time for our reading now, which is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. But we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. That mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Once more we appeal to your Father for grace, for more grace to be given to us from above. Grace that we might meekly receive the implanted word that is able to save us. Grace that we might clear out of our very hearts all sin and evil and rank growth of wickedness. That we might be receptive with ears to hear. That we might be as fertile soil ready to hold fast the things that we hear, so they may produce fruit in our lives. And above all, Lord, we pray that you'll prepare us for that great and awesome day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. We may be ready to meet him, found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So now it's a text. And the text is 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. In the New King James Bible here it reads like this. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's more of a modern translation. Now you can look forward soberly and with intelligence to more of God's kindness to you when Jesus Christ returns. Or how about this one? Have your hearts ready for action. Keep alert and set your hope completely on the blessing which will be given to you when Jesus Christ returns. The idea is that we learn as Christians to look forward more and more to the return of Christ. And this becomes... More completely, our hope for the future. And the thing that gets us out of bed in the morning, the thing that gets us moving, the thing that motivates us, the thing that lifts us up when we're down 
and discouraged and a little depressed in our thoughts, we have our hope set on the grace, the love of God, the kindness that we'll receive when Jesus Christ is revealed. This idea of hope, I think, is a it touches a raw nerve for people today. If we were to talk to people outside of Christian circles, I think we might find that in terms of hope, our world is somewhat impoverished. And I wonder if it's something that becomes more and more evident as people go on in years. And a young person's excited, they've got a career ahead of them, or perhaps marriage, family life to look forward to. But as you go on through those things, and inevitably a certain element of physical wear and tear sets in. Perhaps not just physical wear and tear, but mental as well. And it dawns on you that your best years are behind you. I wonder what hope people have outside of Christ. I wonder what sense of a positive future they can have as they go on through those years. Dominic Lawson writes a column in the Times. And you would think he's quite privileged, really, and and in quite a comfortable position compared to many people. But here's just a sentence or two from a recent article. The idea of being dead petrifies me. I know this is usually expressed as fear of dying, but it's not the process that troubles me. It's the outcome that fills me with dread, non-existence. So even somebody who doesn't believe in hell, who just believes that death is terminal, just cease to exist, even this then is is frightening for him. There's no hope, there's nothing ultimately for him to look forward to within that view of things. But we have grace to be revealed to us, grace and kindness to be given to us, more than we've yet received. Loving kindness from God stored up for us, which will be ours in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the call is to remind ourselves of this often, And to remind each other as well and talk about these things so that our hope is more and more set on that grace that will be ours when the Lord returns. Let's not get too hung up, in other words, on the the good things of this world. There are things to enjoy, aren't there? It's not all doom and gloom. There are things to look forward to. A holiday, perhaps, or some time with the grandchildren. But let's have our hearts more and more fixed on Christ and the good things he's promised us. Now I'm going to do something a little bit different in this sermon from what I normally do. Normally I would take a passage from the scripture and go through it. And then the next week take the succeeding passage and go through that and work through perhaps a chapter or a book of the Bible in that way. This evening I thought that perhaps it would be helpful if I looked with you at some of the questions people ask about (coughs) eternity. And this might seem a little abstract and we'll be looking at one or two Bible verses and that kind of thing can seem a little bit dry, I realise that. But the idea is a practical one to encourage you to set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's not just an exercise in knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's to encourage us with perhaps a clearer view of eternity and a deeper and stronger hope looking forward to it. And of course, maybe I'm I'm raising questions that you're already very comfortable and you you know the answers very well, in which case do bear with me. But these are just one or two of the questions I've been asked as a pastor, and uh, so I thought perhaps we could look at them this evening briefly. Here's the first one. If I'm looking forward to Christ's return, what can I expect when I die, if I die before he returns? 
Christ's return, we mentioned this morning, you know it. It's the day of resurrection, new heavens and a new earth. A reunited body and soul in the presence of the Lord and we're with him forever. But what about if we die before that point? Well, this is what we call the intermediate state. And we understand from various scripture passages that the body and soul separate. The body is perhaps buried, cremated. The soul enters into the presence of the Lord, heaven. But heaven's not our final destination. That's not our ultimate hope. That's just an intermediate state. It's a disembodied state. So if you turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the passage that I read earlier, chapter 5, verses 1 to 10 of 2 Corinthians, then I hope to be able to show you this from Paul's words. It's a little bit obscure, the words here, but I think he's talking about the contrast between our present state and our final state. And then he's going to talk about our present state and the intermediate state. So let me take you through these verses. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1. Our earthly house, this tent, will be destroyed. That means our bodies, our physical bodies. The body that you and I are in now. It's a tent, it's a temporary thing. It's not a very strong or permanent structure. It's something quite fragile and flimsy. And I expect you know this from hospital appointments and doctor's appointments that you've had and such things. We've all been there, haven't we? So this is a tent, this body, but it will be destroyed in death. But he says, don't worry about that too much. Don't let that trouble you. Don't be alarmed by that, because you will have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Your resurrection body, in other words, something strong and solid and permanent. That will be your resurrection body. And in verse 2, we're groaning and looking forward to this. (laughs) We long for it. We earnestly desire it. We want to be clothed with this new heavenly body. We don't want to be found naked or disembodied. We want to be fully clothed. Mortality swallowed up by life. Verse 4. So here Paul's contrasting the body that you have now and the body that you'll have in the resurrection day, the day of Christ, in the new heavens and the new earth. And he says, what a wonderful body that will be. No death, no wearing out, no aches and pains. It will be permanent permanent solid structure as it were for your eternal life and he mentions in verse 5 reassuringly that the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee to you if the Holy Spirit lives in you then he guarantees this future so he started there in those verses contrasting the present frail body with the coming eternal resurrection body that will be yours set your hope fully on this grace that will be revealed But then in verse 6, the emphasis changes, and he says we're confident, we're at home in this body here, but we're absent from the Lord. We're not in the presence of Christ. We walk by faith, not by sight. And that's quite challenging sometimes. They say, Christ is here with us in church, but that's a statement of faith, isn't it? We have his promise that he'll be with us, which we believe, And so we say, well, Christ is here, but we don't see him. He's not available to our senses in that way. And it's hard to walk by faith. It's hard to keep trusting promises of things that you can't see or experience directly. So Paul says we're confident, but we'd rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So now we contrast our present state with the intermediate state. You leave the body behind 
and your soul enters into the presence of the Lord in heaven. And he says that's better actually than life here. It's not a physical life. You don't have all the pleasures and the excitements and the joys and the happiness that goes with having a physical body. But you are in the presence of the Lord. So even that intermediate state is better than life here in this body, Paul says. And he says something similar in Philippians, you might remember. He talks about his situation in prison in Philippians chapter 1. He says, I don't know whether they'll kill me or whether they'll release me. He says, I don't really mind. He says, it's, very, it's a very kind of uh, calm and, and joyful letter, Philippians, for someone in prison on death row. He says, I expect they'll release me from prison and I'll come and visit you again and that would be good. But he says, I prefer for myself, I prefer to die and go to be with Christ because that's far better. And that's just the intermediate state he's talking about there. So we have that distinction there. And it's interesting that there's a verse there in Revelation which talks about people in heaven asking the Lord, how long? How long? And they're saying, how long until you bring justice? They are aware of what's going on in this world then, our brothers and sisters in glory, and they see how unfair it all is, and they long for the Lord to bring the day when he puts right all the wrongs. And he says, just a little longer, you can read that in Revelation 6, verse 9, 10 and 11. So this is to encourage us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be ours when Christ is revealed. Even when we die and go to heaven, that's not the end of it. That's not the best. It's better than this world. But there's more to come when Christ returns. And we set our hope on that. I don't know if this is your question or not. It might not be. It might seem... A rather a, a foolish question to you, but to some people it's intensely serious. Will my pet be in heaven? For some people this is a big, big deal. And of course I think you can see and, and perhaps already don't need me to point out that might uh, be quite unlikely if heaven is a place of humans, disembodied humans, spirits. Pets don't have spirits. So they're not going to be in heaven, no. But... You will have pets in the new heaven and the new earth, I take it. If you're an animal lover, there will be animals there. Let, look, look with me at Isaiah 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 onwards. Isaiah chapter 11. I'll try and explain what I'm, what I'm saying here. This might be something which encourages you to look forward to the coming of the Lord in perhaps a more concrete and specific way. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 onwards. I think these two pages of the Bible are glued together. Here we are, that's it. Now again, people might talk about these verses and interpretations might vary, but my understanding is this is a picture of the new world, the world that will begin when Jesus returns. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall pray by the cobra's hole. The weaned child shall put his hand into the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So there's a beautiful picture there of peace in the animal kingdom. 
There will be animals then, if this is our reliable guide here in Isaiah 11, there will be animals in the new heavens and the new earth. And they'll be the same as the animals we have on earth. But they'll be peaceful. They won't be ferocious. They won't be carnivores. Animals which in this world are predator and prey will lie down together. And so the child will be able to lead a a lion and a calf around together. And so I take it that there will be pets then. There will be animals that we love and enjoy spending time with in eternity. Whether it's the cow or the bear or even the cobra and the viper. These will be delightful to us and they will be harmless and they will be tame. There will be no hurting, there will be no destroying in the mountain of the Lord. Verse 9. So that's something to look forward to. Perhaps not exactly your own precious pet that, that died. Not exactly the same one. But certainly all kinds of animals for us to delight in and enjoy in that world. And perhaps that helps some of you here to look forward to it and say, that sounds like the sort of thing I'd really appreciate. Now the third question is a hard one. And you can, you can tell me afterwards if you think we've, we've got this right. I was asked this question by a teenage girl in a youth group in first days of Christian work and it completely flummoxed me and I've been thinking about it ever since. How will I be happy in heaven or in the new heavens and the new earth if my loved ones are in hell? Have you ever wondered that? It's a very troubling question, isn't it? People I care about, the people who are close to me, the people I pray for, well, um, perhaps they weren't converted in the end and I have to spend eternity without them. And furthermore, I think it's clear in the Bible that we are aware of the different states of people. We're aware not only of those who are included in the new world, but also those who are excluded. That certainly is the implication of the picture of Lazarus and the rich man. Remember in Jesus' teaching in Luke 16, Lazarus is comforted in Abraham's bosom. But he looks down and sees the rich man in a place of torment. They're aware of each other. They can call out to each other across the great divide. But nobody can cross from one side to the other. So I suppose in thinking about this we should maybe start by saying generally. In terms of the general idea of judgment. Whatever we might think about it now. We will rejoice in the end. When we see God's right and final judgment that is fair and just. Might not feel that way now. Because we're concerned for people who are on the wrong path. But in the end, we will rejoice not only in God's love and grace that saved us. But also in his judgment that dealt fairly with everyone else. We will see the rightness of it in a way that we don't now. Generally, also, we will see then that the people whom God has not included have no desire for him whatsoever at that point. None whatsoever. We read, for example, and you might like to turn with me to Revelation chapter 16.
we read in verse 9 that people under the judgment of God blasphemed his name and cursed him. They did not repent and give him glory. We read something similar in the same chapter in verse 11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and they did not repent of their deeds. And then we read the same down in verse 21 of the same chapter. Men blasphemed God. They cursed him. People under that final judgment of God have no interest, no desire, no thought of turning back to God. No desire to put things right. Their whole spirit and soul is hate towards God. And cursing him with bitter curses, even as they suffer under his judgment. So it may be that when we see this, we'll be consoled for the state of our loved ones. Because they won't appear then as they do now. When we think of our unconverted sons and daughters, brother, sister, whoever it may be, we love them. And what we love in them is so much, isn't it, to do with God's common grace, God's kindness to his enemies. What would they be without God's common grace? What would they be if you took away all the external grace of God in terms of laws and prison and such things and let them run riot and do what they want without fear of punishment in this world? What would they turn into? What would they turn into if... God removed the grace of conscience from them. So they didn't have that troubling voice in the back of their mind anymore telling them that what they were doing was wrong. What would they turn into? Well, one day these are things we will see and understand more clearly, I think, than we do now. But it's maybe a good thing that we don't see these things too clearly today because here and now in this world we still care for people who don't know Christ And we want them to find Christ and we want them to turn to Christ and we want them to be saved and we want them to be forgiven. And that's not just our nearest and dearest. That's all kinds of people. Paul even goes so far in the letter of Romans, as perhaps you know, to say he would prefer to be cut off and condemned so that his Jewish countrymen might be saved. Whatever is true in eternity and whatever we'll think and feel then, it's right for us now to have a great concern and desire, much more than we do, I dare say, a great desire to see people saved and converted. So these troubling thoughts then ought not to detract from our Christian hope. The hope that we're to set fully on the grace that will be ours, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's something that came up also in a pastoral context. Will my hidden secrets be revealed in the day of the Lord? Will everything come out? Will everything be known? Will they all know everything about me? The woman who asked me this had, um, before her marriage and before her conversion, she'd been involved with another woman. And it really distressed her to think that one day her daughter might find out about this. Her daughter hadn't been born at the time. Of course, it was before her marriage, but it really put her off. The thought of eternal life, to think that her daughter would see all this about her and she'd be so ashamed. And I have to say, I think, yes, as far as I see in the scriptures, challenging as it may be, the day of the Lord is a day when secrets are known. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. 
verse 1 to 3. There's one of several scriptures we could look at under this heading. Time when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so they trampled one another, he, that is Jesus, began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you've spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. But we can see the justice of this, I suggest, when it's wicked people who've done secret things that have never come out in this world. Abusers, uh, con men. Uh, They've done their deeds in secret and nobody knows about them. They'll never be arrested or taken to court. But it's all going to come out in the glory. We feel that's right and appropriate and as it should be. It's right when you think about these Pharisees as well that Jesus was discussing. Religious frauds, hypocrites, pretenders, made a great show of worshipping God, but underneath there were just selfishness. And it's right that this should come out and that this should be seen and known. But it's a little bit harder when you think of the believer. Our secrets coming out. And I think the way to look at this is to say... Our secrets will come out, but in a place where we are above reproach. In glory, we will be blameless, the Bible says. Nobody will be able to condemn us or criticise us. Nobody will be able to point the finger and say, well, look at you, and why did you do that, and isn't that embarrassing? We will be above reproach. There will be no condemnation at all. And I'm getting that we would like to turn up another scripture from Colossians chapter 1. This is all with the aim of encouraging you to look forward to the day of the Lord and not to be troubled by thinking, oh, I don't want all my, my secret sins to come out. Well, they will come out, but there'll be no embarrassment or shame in that because Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23 tells us how things will be then when Christ returns. You were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he's reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. That will be you and me. That will be all the Lord's people. Somehow, all the the, the things that we wouldn't want anybody to know about today will be known, but they won't count against us. There won't be the the shame, the criticism. Uh, We will be blameless. And if you ask, how can that be? Well, surely the answer is there in that verse 22. The physical flesh and blood death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the difference, isn't it, ultimately between us And those who will not be there. The death of Christ. So no accusation against us can stand. And all my sins and all the secrets and all the 
ugly stuff and the shameful stuff, all this will do is give greater glory to Christ. Because instead of saying, look at that miserable man there, look at what he really is, they'll say, look at Christ who saved him. What a great saviour he is. We thought he only saved Tom Forian from all those respectable sins. But look at all this other stuff we didn't know about, but he saved him from that too. His cross paid for all of it. And all the glory in that day will go to the Lord Jesus Christ. In a day when everything's known, the worst about us is known, and the glory will be his for saving us from all these things. So look forward to that day. It's going to be a great day. Don't let thoughts of your secrets and hidden shameful sins and thoughts and all these things, don't let that put you off. It's going to be a glorious day. And greater the sins you've been saved from, the greater the glory that will be his. Last one, I think. Will there be rewards in heaven? It's a strange idea, isn't it? Because we know that there's, there's, no, there's no merit here. There's nobody getting what they deserve in heaven. Nobody's rewarded in that absolute sense that you can say, I earned this, I deserve this. And yet the Lord Jesus talks a number of times about differences in heaven and the ways that different people will have a different outcome though all are in the same place. So, just uh, one example then. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 37 to 40. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, have come to the Lord Jesus with a request. And it's only a little thing they're asking for. It's not a great thing. It's not a, a big thing. Oh, oh, we don't want much, Master. Verse 37. Grant that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. It's not much to ask, is it? Now, some people's understanding of heaven would have the Lord Jesus say at this point, well, there's no such place. There's no such place. Everybody's equal in heaven, don't you know? There's no right or left next to me. You'll all be the same. You'll all have the same status, the same standing, the same reward. So just get used to that idea. But he doesn't answer that way. He says to them, do you qualify? Verse 38. Can you suffer in the way that I will suffer? Talking about the cup and the baptism relating to his death. Oh yes, they say. Oh yes, we can do that. Well, he says, yes, you will suffer. But listen, these seats are prepared from eternity for certain people. I can't just give them out willy-nilly. <coughs> but for our purposes, notice what he's not saying. He's not saying these places don't exist. There will be somebody at his right. There will be somebody at his left. What kind of people will they be? Well, I assume from what he's saying here, they'll be the people who've suffered greatly in the cause of Christ and served enthusiastically. As he goes on to talk about in the next paragraph. In other words, these will be the people who are the most like Jesus Christ in their character. The most Christ-like Christians. These will be the ones who are honoured in this way. <coughs> They may be people you've read about in the history books. They may be people you've read about in the Bible. They may be people nobody's ever heard of. But when you're in glory, you'll see them and you'll say, that's right. They should be there. That is the right place for them. Look at all they went through. Look at all they did. 
What amazing people they are. How great is the grace of God in their lives that moulded them into this likeness of Christ. George Whitfield understood this. You've heard of George Whitfield, the 18th century preacher. There was, there was two great ones, wasn't there? There was John Wesley and George Whitfield. And everybody's heard of John Wesley. And George Whitfield in his day was equally famous. But he was more of a pure preacher rather than an organiser and the founder of a denomination, such things as Wesley did. Well, sadly, these, these, two, these, these two men were friends back in the day, but they fell out rather sharply over the whole question of predestination. In spite of the fact that it's in the Bible and it's in the Church of England prayer book, which they both subscribe to, John Wesley reacted violently against that idea. Not only violently, but also publicly. There was a sermon preached, there was a letter published and so on. And so it got to the point where people would say, well, do you follow Whitfield or do you follow Wesley? It seemed impossible to follow them both. One of Whitfield's followers said to him, well, sir, shall we see John Wesley in heaven? Oh, no, George Whitfield said. No, we shan't see him there. What, sir, are you saying that he's lost altogether? Oh, no. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that he will be so close to the throne and we will be so far away that we shan't see him. So this idea that there are differences in glory. But it won't trouble us if we're, if we're not in some high place of honour like that, it won't trouble us, it won't bother us at all. We'll just be delighted to see those who suffered much and served greatly, honoured in this way. But even now in this world we can aspire to perhaps rise a little higher, to do a little more for the Lord, to be a little bolder, a little more adventurous, a little more ready to, to take some of the flack, a little more ready to put ourselves out for the sake of others, and perhaps to secure a slightly better eternal reward. Well, all this then, really, is just by way of saying that you and I have a great deal to look forward to. We have a lot to hope for. We may have things to look forward to in this life, or perhaps not, I don't know. We may feel our life here is exciting and full of good days coming up. We may feel that life is rather drab and bleak and a little dreary in this world. But that should be all the more of an encouragement to set our hope on the grace that will be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. I do hope you'll do that more and more in these coming days. Let's pause now and turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, there are wonderful things spoken of here in the scriptures. Some we've been able to think about briefly this evening. Pointing us to great days to come. How we look forward to being in that place where your servants are honoured. How we look forward to seeing the great ones lifted up in the presence of Christ. How we look forward to the day when he receives the glory he deserves as our saviour. <coughs> the one who inspired the saints and filled them with grace to live the wonderful way that they did. The one who saved sinners such as us and all the sin will be known. But the glory will be his. How we look forward to this day when we leave this world behind. And we enter the presence of the Lord. But then the greater day when Christ returns. We are fully clothed. What is mortal is swallowed up in life. 
we receive our eternal dwelling and live forever with the Lord. Wonderful things there. Better things even than in this creation. Animals made perfect. Just one of the, the everyday pleasures of life here. Made better, made right, made eternal. Many, many other things that we enjoy here will have their eternal, glorious equivalent. But best of all, we will see his face, all of us. We will be there and we will see him as he is. Thank you for this prospect, Lord, which I pray will fill the hearts of all your people here again and again through all the days to come until you call us home or come in glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.